The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Well, we come now to God's Word, and so whether you're watching at home or in the chapel or here in this room, it's good to be together as we open God's Word. So would you join me as we pray and ask Him for help? Father in heaven, would you incline our hearts to your word? Would you open our eyes to see wondrous things in this book and in this passage this morning so that our souls would be satisfied in Jesus? Enliven our hearts to see afresh the glory of Christ so that we would be changed and that we would be increasingly conformed to the image of your Son. Do this for the sake of your glory and for our joy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. First Peter, as we've seen so far, is like a handbook on suffering for the persecuted church. Again and again and again, it's talked about. This is what it looks like for Christians to suffer in the world. It's not to be surprising. It's not to be unusual. But this is what it looks like for believers to suffer. And now we come to the final passage where Peter talks about suffering. And what I want to do is just highlight for a moment. Let's just ponder for a second the types of suffering that's taking place right now around the world. There are more than 260 million Christians suffering around the world, persecuted Christians. Our experience here in America of perhaps some maligning and slander and mostly low-level suffering is the anomaly and not the norm. Just consider some of these statistics from the 2020 World Watch List from opendoorsusa.org, which tracks some of the most dangerous places for you to be a believer. They say... 2,983 Christians were killed for faith-related reasons. That's about eight every single day. 9,488 churches or Christian buildings were attacked, sometimes bombed. 3,711 Christians were detained without trial, arrested, sentenced, and or imprisoned. But these are just some of the statistics, some of the numbers. Let me highlight the three top countries on that list that are experiencing some of the greatest persecution. The first is North Korea. If you're found to be a believer in North Korea, you're sent away to labor camps as a political criminal or you're killed right on the spot. There's no worship possible unless it's entirely in secret. They estimate there are potentially 300,000 Christians in this country of 25 million. Or second is Afghanistan. It's illegal for a person, for an Afghan, to leave Islam. Large parts of the country are run entirely by militants or by the Taliban, and converts to Christianity live entirely in secret. They think there may be a few thousand Christians in this country of 37 million Or third on the list is Somalia. Somalia has been 
mired in civil war, tribalism, and violent Islamic militancy. Conversion to Christianity is seen as betraying not only your family and culture, but also your clan. And converts to Christianity are very often harassed, intimidated, and even killed. They estimate that there's only a few hundred Christians in this country of 15 million. But let me bring it down one more level. What we often take for granted, that we can watch a live stream of Christian preaching and teaching and sit in on potentially hundreds of different worship services, or we can come to gather in person, worshiping with other Christians, that our children can come, is virtually illegal in many of these places. You're forbidden to share the gospel. In a place like China, children under 18 are not allowed to go to church at all. Not allowed to participate in any church activity. So what we take for granted, that we have a high school pastor and a middle school pastor and children's curriculum and children's ministry and Lord willing, we'll even hire a pastor for children's and family discipleship would be utterly unthinkable in many of these places. What we take for granted as normal would be unthinkable in these places because it's illegal. It would be punished by death or imprisonment. So the book of 1 Peter is not some untested theory for hypothetical situations, but the, fir- the book of 1 Peter has been the soothing balm for the open wounds of the persecuted church for centuries and centuries. And it is a soothing balm for our souls this morning. Whether we're facing great persecution or relatively minimal persecution, These things have been written so that we would be able to stand firm in our faith because of the Lord Jesus Christ and what he's done. Last week, we saw a little bit of a glimpse of why we suffer. We suffer because God uses it and redeems it so that we would become more like him, so that we would be tested, so that we would be purified so that it would clarify that Jesus is in fact our treasure and that the spirit of glory and of God would rest upon us and sustain us. And this week we see and we answer the question, how then should we suffer? How should we suffer? If that's why we suffer, how should we suffer? And these are Peter's final words on suffering because he longs for them to suffer well. And the main point of our passage is that believers are to suffer in order to glorify God by entrusting themselves to their faithful creator. Believers are to suffer such that God gets glory from their suffering. And the way they do that, one of the ways they do that is that they entrust their souls, entrust their lives to God who is a faithful creator. We use the suffering to display the immeasurable worth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Peter's aim goes back again to what we've talked about nearly every single week, the broad theme and melodic line of this entire book, which is in chapter 1, verse 1, you are elect exiles, know your identity, this is not your ultimate home, and then chapter 5, verse 12, stand firm in the true grace of God. So as elect exiles who know who you are in this world and where you're going, stand firm. Don't topple over when the winds blow, when the suffering comes. 
Stand firm because this is what God has called you to. So our plan is to look at this passage in four parts. Verse 15, how not to suffer. Verse 16, how we are to suffer. And then verse 17 and 18, which gives some of the reasons for why we are to suffer. And then verse 19, to conclude it all, that we entrust ourselves to the faithful one. So look with me at verse 15, how we are not to suffer. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief, or as an evildoer, or as a meddler. So what we see here is a contrast between verse 14 and verse 15. In verse 14, he says, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed. Because the spirit of God and of glory rests upon you. It's a blessing, not a curse, to suffer for Jesus. But then he immediately contrasts this. But don't mistaken that all suffering is somehow good suffering. Because not all suffering is good suffering. If you suffer as a murderer, as a thief, as an evildoer, as a meddler, it's not good. It doesn't bring glory to God. These are evil acts that, reser- that result in deserved punishment. And Peter gives a list of four things. Murder, stealing, doing evil, and meddling. And the first three are pretty self-explanatory. If you murder, you're going to get thrown in jail. You're going to be convicted of that crime. That doesn't bring God any glory. The spirit of glory and of God doesn't rest upon you when you're doing evil things. And you're not to try to escape the suffering there. You're, try, you're supposed to not actually do the evil thing that would bring about deserved sufferings. That's what he means when he says, let none of you suffer as a murderer. But the fourth item is most interesting. This fourth term, meddler, only shows up here in the Bible and no one, nowhere else. It's an unusual word. It could be translated as watching over another's affairs or being a mischief maker, a troublemaker, or a busybody. We might say, you know, the, the town gossip or someone who's particularly nosy. Why does he include that even here? Well, the, the thought is likely that Peter's readers aren't actually murdering or stealing But he says, don't do evil things that would bring about deserved suffering, but don't even do things that would be more kind of low level, that would distract and detract from the name of Christ. Don't be annoying so that people would say, ah, those Christians, they're always doing that. Let them not like you for truly suffering for the name of Jesus, for truly holding on to the things of Christ. 1 Peter 2.20, Peter wrote earlier, for what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it and you endure? His point there and his point here is that there's no credit, there's no reward, there's nothing good that comes about when you're doing evil. And he doesn't want Christians to mainly be those who are doing evil because that would distract and detract from God and from his glory. God doesn't get glory when Christians do evil things and then play the victim. And so we ought to watch our conduct in the public sphere so that we're not bringing dishonor on the name of Christ, whether we're doing terrible things, heinous things like stealing or murder or even lower level things like meddling. Peter wanted believers not to be obnoxious and tactless so that their faith would get a fair hearing in the public square. 
So that's how he tells us we shouldn't suffer. We shouldn't suffer for doing evil. But then now he turns to how we should suffer. Look with me at verse 16. He says, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. In verse 16, we get two commands. So the first command was in verse 15, don't be ashamed. I mean, don't, uh, don't suffer as a murderer. And now we get two commands in verse 16. Don't be ashamed, but glorify God in that name. And the stress in this verse is on the title or the label Christian. That only shows up in the New Testament, I believe, about three times. Here in 1 Peter and then twice in Acts. In Acts 11.26, it says, And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Or Acts 26.28, Agrippa says to Paul, Would you in this short of a time convince me already to be a Christian? So Christian was a label given to followers of Jesus from those on the outside, like the word Herodians, followers of Herod, Christians, followers of Christ. And it was sort of used not entirely as a derogatory term, but it was to describe them as a group. And so what Peter is saying is do not be ashamed of being called a Christian for suffering as a Christian. Now, what does it mean to not then be ashamed? How would one be ashamed of being a Christian? Well, I think it means that when others mock, malign, slander, deride, that we would be tempted to deny Christ, to abandon him. We see that in Luke 9, 26. Jesus says, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. So Jesus says, Don't be ashamed of me because when the Son of God comes back, he won't be ashamed of you. And the flip side of that is true as well. If you're ashamed of Jesus, if you deny him, then Jesus will be ashamed of you. And so being willing to suffer as a Christian is that way of being willing to be unashamed. We we, we saw last week that when Jesus comes back, all of God's people will see it and they'll be what? They'll rejoice and be glad because we weren't ashamed because we were willing to suffer with Jesus. 2 Timothy 1.8 says... Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, this is Paul writing, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. So to not be ashamed of God is to be willing to suffer with him. And then he contrasts that instead of being ashamed of suffering as a Christian, we are to actually glorify God in that name. That when others call you a Christian, oh, you're one of those people. You're one of those Christians. One one of those that really believe in the Bible. You think that there's a creator? You really believe all that stuff in, in that book? A bunch of fairy tales? That when you're insulted for that, you're to wear it proudly. Glorify God in that name. Whether we eat or whether we drink. Whatever we do, we are to give glory to God so that when we're maligned for having the name Christian, we are actually to say, this is an opportunity to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by actually receiving that insult. 
holding on to that name of Christ, clarifying that our treasure is Jesus Christ. And this gets back to one of those well-worn wells that we have here at Bethlehem. That we believe, even in suffering, even in persecution, that God is most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in him. That Jesus is better. That he's of greater price. That he's more praiseworthy. That he's more trustworthy. That he's worth our lives, even when it means all else fails. So when someone snickers in the lunchroom that you're a Christian, we show That our aim is to enjoy God and that brings him glory. When someone mocks you for believing in a creator or they leave you out of something because you hold the biblical convictions on marriage or sexuality or like Christians in China who refuse to deny Christ and they will likely lose their jobs, lose their prominent positions in academia or in the political sphere or Christians in Iran or Afghanistan That if you will not deny Christ, you will have your throat slit in that moment. Or like Christians in Nigeria who refuse to deny Christ and could have their homes burned down or their daughters kidnapped. Or like Christians in Morocco who refuse to deny Christ and lose their property and even the custody of their children. Peter is writing, not hypothetically, he's writing to say, Remain steadfast. God gets glory when you suffer, minimally or even in great ways, to show that our treasure is not in this world, that this world has nothing it can offer us, that no matter what, Jesus is more. Jesus is better. He's more satisfying to our souls. And so God is glorified when we're satisfied in him, when we can say that no matter what, I have my delight in the Lord Jesus Christ. That it's better to stand with Jesus with all the reproach of Christ than to have all the riches of the world handed to us on a platter. Christians are to use suffering to show that Jesus is worth more. Pleasure or pain. He is more satisfying to the parched souls of our hearts. So, he's given us the reason for suffering, that we're to, or he's given us power to suffer, mainly that we're to glorify God and not be ashamed. And now he gives the reason, some of the undergirding reasons for that in verses 17 and 18. So look with me there. It says in verse 17, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will become the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and sinners? Now, verses 17 and 18 have no imperatives here. And we can see that it begins with the word for. He's giving reasons for what's just come. The reasons Christians suffer is because the judgment has already begun. We see that. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And so that raises two questions. Who is the household of God? And then what judgment is he talking about? Now, let's look at that first one. The household of God points all the way back to the Old Testament where God's house is his temple. We saw it 
in Malachi 3, which we let, read last week. I'll read portions of it again. But like we saw in Malachi 3, God comes in his judgment as a refiner's fire. And where does he go? He goes to his temple. And who does he refine through fiery trials? The Levites, his people. So Malachi 3, 1 to 4. It says, the Lord whom you seek will come suddenly to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he's coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fooler's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. So God God's purifying judgment is coming first to his people so that they would be ready and useful, purified, set apart to serve him. And in that same way, Peter says, God has already begun that judgment with his house. And in that same way, God now comes with fiery trials in order to purify his people so they too would be able and ready to serve. Already, in First Peter, what has he established as the people of God? He's called us his chosen race, his royal priesthood, his holy nation, a people for his own possession. We are the new temple of God in which God's spirit dwells, but God's spirit can only dwell with a holy people. Be holy as I, the Lord your God, am holy. And so God sets apart his people. And so now he's bringing this judgment not of end time condemnation, but of a purifying judgment so that God's people would increasingly look like him, would be set apart for his purposes. So God is sanctifying his church as priests, as a holy priesthood in order to serve him. Now, that second question, what is this judgment? This judgment is the experience of pain and suffering as part of God's designed purifying work in the lives of believers. We saw this last week. God is using and redeeming suffering in the lives of believers in order to conform us increasingly into his image so that the spirit of God and of glory would rest upon us and that we're blessed in all of those good things. So suffering for Jesus tests and purifies believers, confirming that Christ is their treasure. So now he gives this rhetorical question at the end of verse 17. He says, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? So if believers experience suffering and pain, maligning and slander as part of the beginning of judgment, of sanctifying of God's people, he says, then what's going to be the experience of all those that will come? Before we answer that question, let's look at verse 18. Because in verse 18, we get a entirely parallel verse that's a direct quote from Proverbs 11:31 the Greek translation of that verse and it says if the righteous is scarcely saved what will become of the ungodly and the sinner so you can see again we get that rhetorical question at the end there what will become of the ungodly and sinner and and the question that we want to ask of this verse is what does it mean that the righteous is scarcely saved because that will shed light on how we understand the passage from before scarcely could have two possible reasons the first could mean like barely. Romans 5, 7 
says, uses the same word. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. So the idea here is that it's rare, it's unlikely. One would barely be willing to die for a righteous person. But that's not what Peter means. Because Peter's already established that God's blood is the infinite blood that has redeemed his people. As though, not as though that God kind of struggles, like he could barely save his people. No, it's We've not been redeemed by blood and goats or by silver or gold, but by the precious blood of Christ. So the other possibility is that it means with difficulty. The NIV translates it this way. It is hard for the righteous to be saved. And I think that's what he means by scarcely. It's with difficulty. The same word is actually used in Acts 27, 7 and 8, where he's talking about his travels. And we tried to enter into this port or get to this island, but it was with great difficulty. He uses it twice there. And the idea is that Christians take hold of eternal life, follow Jesus on the pathway to Calvary with great difficulty, that we are saved with great difficulty, striving. That it's not just Jesus says, come to me, and it's going to be really easy. It's just going to be coasting from here. I'm promising you a really easy journey. This will be the hardest part, and then everything from here just gets easier. No, he says, pick up your cross and follow me. Even foxes have holes to hide in, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He told his disciples, follow me, but he says, it's not going to be easy. It's with great difficulty. Follow the narrow road. For those of you that have read Pilgrim's Progress, uh, there's a, a kid version called Dangerous Journey, which has all these great illustrations that we read with our family. And if you think about John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, what does Christian have to endure once he reads and discovers, I want to get to the celestial city. That's where I want to go. It's not just a pathway lined with rainbows and unicorns and daisies. No, it, it, it's, it's difficult. He, he travels along the narrow road, gets through the wicked gate. It, it's trekking through the slough of despond and then turning away from Mr. Worldly Wise Man that says, no, 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 turn back, turn back. You're going the wrong way. He has to climb the hill of difficulty and then fight Apollyon. And you think, okay, that's the final one, this big dragon uh, that he has to fight. And then he has to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. He has to get through the town of Valley Fair with all of its temptations and trinkets. And then he has to escape from Doubting Castle and giant despair that wants to keep him there. It's with great difficulty every step of the way until he finally reaches the celestial city. And in that same way, for believers here on earth, the reason Peter says, don't be surprised, because this is the pathway of obedience in following Jesus. But what they say should bring us comfort, but it's also a sobering and stark reality. What will become of the ungodly and sinner? And the answer is left unspoken. 
So the picture is, if Christians have to experience suffering and pain in following Jesus all the way until we take hold of our inheritance that's waiting for us in heaven, it's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. We're finally going to get there, but it's not a road that's easy. It's a narrow road. It's a crag, craggly road full of cracks and, and, and trials and, and, and steep cliffs and suffering and pain. But then we'll get glory. So if Christians have to suffer and we're the beloved of God, what will happen to God's enemies? It will be horrific and it will be terrible. Because if Christians here on earth as God's beloved in a place like Egypt could be beheaded by ISIS fighters. And God says, you'll never be shortchanged in my kingdom. Never. Never. The pain of that, the shame of that will pale in comparison with the weight of glory that you will have in heaven. Then how much suffering will there be for the ungodly, for the sinner, and for those who disobey the word of God? Peter's using an argument from lesser to greater. If Christians have to suffer a little bit, a little bit on the way to be with Jesus forever, it's going to be that much worse for those who do not trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter's point is that even in this earthly life where we might experience this winnowing pain, it will pale in comparison to the terrible, unbearable, eternal punishment that will be given out in hell, in eternal punishment for all those who hate and reject God. And so this is to remind Peter's readers, listeners, don't fall away. You're going through the hard stuff now, but heaven, heaven will be glorious. And God, he's not going to let anyone snatch you out of his hand. The spirit of glory and of God is resting upon you. But if you fall away now, it's going to get much worse. And it's a word for many of us this morning. If you're not trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, we would call you to come. Come to Jesus. Surrender your life. Escape eternal punishment. And be with God forever. Why will hell be terrible? Because it will be eternal separation from God's presence his love, and his grace. The Bible tells us that hell is an eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. It's eternal punishment. And yet it's also a place that will be completely void of God's loving presence and grace. Hell will be a place where all those who are trusting in themselves will get to see how that strategy fared. When God's common grace and mercy and love is removed. Hell will be hell because God's love and presence will be absent. And this is a sober and somber word for us this morning. And it's great encouragement for all those who are in Christ. Stand firm in the true grace of God. Stand firm because Jesus is holding you. And yes, we're going to go through some judgment right now, suffering in this life. 
and yet it results in glory with Jesus forever. Now look with me at verse 19, because he sort of sums it up in verse 19. 19 could be a way of almost summing up the entire book of what Peter's said up to this point. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. He reminds us again, if you're suffering, you're suffering according to God's will, not just haphazard suffering, but God is in control. Now he says, entrust your soul to a faithful creator. This word entrust is different than the word trust. Entrust conveys the idea of giving over to someone so that they might take care of it and steward it. It's used in 2 Timothy 2.2. What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who, who will be able to teach others also. That's Paul speaking. He says, Timothy, I've entrusted the gospel to you. I've given it to you. Now you take that and give it to others so that they'll take care of it. And that's what Peter's saying. Take your very own soul and life and all that you are and don't say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to watch out for myself. I'm going to entrust this to me and my way of doing things. He says, hand it all over to a faithful creator who will do good as we do good. 1 Peter 2.23 shows us Jesus' own modeling of this very reality. It says, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But what did he do? He continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. Jesus says, I'm not holding even my own life into my own hands, but I'm entrusting it to the Father. So when he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Or when he's in the garden, let this cup pass, but not my will, but your will be done. And that's what Peter's calling his readers to say. That's to be our prayer, not my will. Oh God, this suffering looks great. Not my will, but your will be done. One of the best ways that we're forced to think about entrusting something into the hands of someone else is when you fill out your will. Who gets the kids if I die and my wife dies? Who gets to raise them? Who, 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 who gets to care for them? Or as you get older and you think about advanced directives and power of attorney, who, who makes decisions if I become a vegetable? If I, if I can't talk or even breathe on my own anymore, which one of my children or friends will make the call about my life? That's one of the ways that we entrust our souls to another. And what Peter is saying is, give God the power of attorney. He's the one who will never do wrong. He's the one who will never leave you, nor will he forsake you. He is the one who will care for you all the days of your life and bring you home at the right time. He uses this word, faithful creator, and it's such a a good reminder. He doesn't say, just entrust yourself to God. He could have said that. He says, entrust yourself to this faithful creator. Faithful creator conveys for us, not only is he the creator of the world who spoke into existence all of creation, he's the one sustaining it right now by the word of his power. 
Believers do not suffer haphazardly, but suffer knowing that the creator and the present sustainer of the world is the one that's overseeing our experience of that suffering. And it should give us great hope. He's faithful and he's the creator. I remember when I was a first time father, we had just one at that time. It was Noelle and she was maybe two. And we would go to the park in South Minneapolis and I would throw her up into the air and she would fly maybe 12 to 15 feet high. And then I'd catch her right under the arms and she would squeal with delight and laughter. I'm looking out and I'm guessing many of the dads did this. And, and my wife was sort of like reluctant, hesitant, you know, what if you kind of you know, if you're not that coordinated, uh, it could go pretty bad. Uh, and I remember a little old lady in the park looking at us kind of nervously. And she said, you shouldn't do that. You know, she said it really kindly. Um, and in my mind, well, I'm not going to drop her. And yet I could have, right? I, I could have got distracted. Uh, my, my hand could have got caught in her shirt somehow. And there could have been significant injury because I don't control gravity. But when Peter says, entrust yourself to the faithful creator, if gravity was the thing that was going to hurt you, he could say the word and gravity would pause in that moment. If enemies were too great, he would say the word and they would be annihilated. When he says, you have a faithful creator, entrust yourself to that one, he will never leave you, nor will he forsake you. He will never drop you on your head. He will carry you and hold you. He is the one that you can trust in all things. Nothing is too great for our God. And so you can entrust yourself to him. Don't suffer for doing evil, but instead when you suffer for the name of Christ. As a Christian, glorify God in that name because you know that the judgment has begun and you're counted as those who are with Jesus who will escape eternal punishment. And in it all, entrust yourself to the one who is faithful. So we got the bad news and the good news this morning. The bad news is that judgment is coming and it will be horrific and terrible for all those who are not trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. But the good news this morning, whether you're watching at home in the chapel or here in this room, is that God is the faithful creator. And if we are willing to entrust ourselves to him, not just, okay, I think I'll try Jesus out, but we surrender our lives, put it into his hands, give him power of attorney over our lives. He will never leave us, nor will he forsake us. He will carry us all the days of our life. And we can put our hands, not into our own hands, but into the nail-scarred hands of Jesus who will not drop us at any point. The ones that the Father has given me that he's put into my hand, no one can snatch them out of my hand. Oh, may we entrust our souls to this faithful creator. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we long for each one of us here this morning, in this room, in the chapel, watching from home, that we would increasingly entrust our lives and souls no matter what comes, good or bad, difficult or easy, that we would entrust ourselves into the hands of our faithful creator because you're good. Get glory for yourself in our hearts and in our lives. We pray in Christ's name, amen.
Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.